Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic History, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Help us keep this going. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. Today, as baseball season begins, we're talking about a Catholic Major League Baseball player once again. This year, it's the longtime single-season home run king, Roger Maris. Now, the record books will show that during the 1998 through 2001 seasons, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa all had higher single-season totals than Maris. But they all use performance-enhancing drugs. So for my money, Roger Maris still deserves credit for the record. But it's kind of ironic that there's controversy over those guys surpassing Maris, given that there was all that controversy over Maris breaking the previous record. Yes, and some added texture to this story is the very different ways in which Bonds, Sosa, and McGuire were treated versus how Maris was treated. Yes, as those three were pursuing baseball immortality, they were treated with hopeful expectation. The chase was applauded and they were basically adored in the press. Maris, on the other hand, had a very, very different experience. So let's start with Maris's story and give his background. He was born Roger Eugene Maras, spelled M-A-R-A-S, in 1934 in Hibbing, Minnesota. He was the younger of his parents' two children, both boys. His parents were Rudy and Connie, and his older brother was Rudolph Jr. Rudy and Connie were Catholic, and they were the children of immigrants from Croatia and Serbia. But they were both apparently hot-headed and querulous. Their marriage was turbulent. When Roger was still a boy, the family moved to Grand Forks, North Dakota, and then to Fargo. At Bishop Shanley High School in Fargo, both Rudolph Jr. and Roger excelled at sports. Roger was a star in track and field, football, and basketball. In football, he actually set a national high school record scoring four return touchdowns in one game. Two on kickoff returns, one on a punt return, and one on an interception return. That record apparently still stands. He also scored a rushing touchdown in that game on a 32-yard run from scrimmage as a halfback, so it was one for the ages. And during the summers, Roger played baseball in the American Legion League. He excelled there as well. He was an impressive athlete, but his older brother was the one expected to make it in professional sports. Unfortunately, Rudolph contracted a mild case of polio at the end of his high school athletics career, which ended those hopes and dreams. Rudy, their father, took this hard. He resented that Roger would have a chance to make it in sports, but Rudolph Jr. would not. Roger carried a sense of guilt about this for years. Rudy and Connie became estranged and their marriage ended in divorce in 1960. But despite this less than pleasant upbringing, Roger maintained his Catholic faith. After graduating from Bishop Shanley High School, Roger got a baseball scholarship to the University of Oklahoma. But he was only a Sooner for 10 days. Yeah, a scout from the Cleveland Indians organization had been working on signing him. Eventually, he got Maris to sign with a combination of bonus offers totaling $15,000. That's about $160,000 today. Which is pretty good money for a kid from Fargo who didn't really have much. Yeah. 
In the minors, as one might expect, Morris excelled. In 1953, he was named the Rookie of the Year in his minor league. In 1954, in an effort to distance himself from his turbulent past, he changed his name from Morris to Maris, smelling it as we all know it, M-A-R-I-S. In 1956, he married his high school sweetheart, Patricia Carville. Pat was also Catholic. Roger and Patricia Maris would have seven children. Throughout his minor league career, Roger excelled. Every team he was on in his four years in the minors improved over their previous year's record. He was a powerful left-handed hitter and a very good, strong-armed right fielder. He made it to the big show in 1957, making his debut with the Indians on April 16th. He was 22 years old. Two days later, he hit his first big league home run, and it was a grand slam. Nice way to start. Seriously. He finished his rookie campaign with 14 homers. In June of 1958, his second major league season, the Indians traded him to the Kansas City Athletics. But he was only with the A's through the end of the 1959 season. In December of 1959, the A's traded him to the New York Yankees. Now, the Yankees at the time were in the midst of one of their runs of dominance. They had won six World Series in the 1950s and had appeared in two others. They were led by the great Mickey Mantle, perhaps the greatest center fielder of all time. They also featured Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra as a pitching battery. With the addition of the power-hitting and excellent right field play of Roger Maris, the Yankees were just retooling to keep up their dominance. And that's what happened. In his first game as a Yankee, Maris hit a single, a double, and two homers. Through the 1960 season, Maris was neck and neck with Mantle in most offensive categories. At the end of the season, Maris had 39 homers, which was second to Mantle's AL leading 40. But Maris led all of the American League in slugging percentage, runs batted in, and extra base hits. He also won a gold glove as the best right fielder in the American League. All of this was enough for him to win the 1960 American League Most Valuable Player Award. However, that season, the Yankees lost the World Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates on the dramatic Game 7 walk-off homer by Bill Mazeroski. There's a famous picture taken of Forbes Field during this World Series. It was taken by George Silk from the top of the Cathedral of Learning, the main building of the University of Pittsburgh. We have a large poster-sized print of it, and it's one that I've had in my living room, wherever my living room happened to be for many years, long before we got married. Yes, I like that photo, and your love of baseball was one of the things to be my ears perk up. That and you drove a manual. I was very impressed. But anyhow. <laughs> yes. Back to the Yankees. They were loaded and ready to come back strong the next season. And then the magical 1961 season came. Now, 1961 saw a number of changes in the American League. For one, the American League added two new teams, the Washington Senators and the Los Angeles Angels. And the second change was the lengthening of the season by eight games from 154 games to 162. So there were more teams and more games. More teams meant that a number of pitchers who would have had more time in the minors were suddenly in the majors. And more games means more times up to bat for each hitter. Almost as soon as the season started, reporters started asking some of the big hitters like Mansell and Maris about offensive output and especially about one of the most hallowed records in baseball, Babe Ruth's record of 60 home runs in a season. Ruth had set the record at 60 in 1927. Now, the thing about Ruth setting that record was that at the time, no one else was hitting homers anything like the rate that Ruth was hitting them. There were entire teams that didn't hit 60 homers in a season. Ruth's feat wasn't just edging out the competition. 
It was blasting through the stratosphere. And the crazy thing about Ruth was that he also hit for average. He drew walks and he didn't strike out a crazy amount. And he was one of the best left-handed pitchers of his day. All combined, Ruth was the best baseball player of all time. And Ruth was beloved. He was great with the press and he was the face of the Yankee franchise. So Babe Ruth holding that record was well nigh a sacred thing to many. But in 1961, with more teams, meaning poor pitching overall, and more games, meaning more at-bats, many recognized that Ruth's record could well be broken. Well, for many fans of the game, they could accept Ruth's record falling if it were broken by Mickey Mantle. Mantle, after all, had come up with the Yankees in 1951. He played right field alongside Joe DiMaggio, who was in center, and then Mantle took over in center when DiMaggio retired. Mantle was with the team for those six World Series victories in the 50s. He was the face of the franchise. He was the best hitter on the team. He was a partier like Ruth had been, and he had a great enough relationship with the New York media. Enter Roger Maris. Maris was quiet, professional, clean-cut, workaday, private. Some would say he was surly. He just did his job. He hit the ball and ran the bases. He caught the ball and threw it in. He was not interested in reporters' trick questions, and he didn't appreciate them prying into his private life. When asked if he thought Ruth's record would be broken, he said he didn't think it was possible and pointed out that hitters struggle to get to 40 homers, let alone 60. But as the 1961 season got going, Maris and Mantle both began hitting homers at a prodigious pace. In short order, the sports writers turned it into the home run derby between the M&M boys, Maris and Mantle. The summer wore on and the homers kept coming. Suddenly, Ruth's record really did seem to be in reach. The pressure from the media intensified. Everyone wanted to know if Maris and Mantle thought they'd do it. As September began, Mickey Mantle had the edge. He went in for a shot in his hip that the doctor said would help. Well, the doctor turned out to be a quack and Mantle developed a severe infection in his hip. Mantle's season was done and he was stuck at 54 homers. This was, ironically, the worst possible thing that could have happened to Maris. Yeah, suddenly Maris was all alone pursuing the record. But he wasn't Mantle. He wasn't Ruth. He had only been a Yankee for one full season. The media called him a usurper and an interloper. They said he didn't deserve to break Ruth's record. He got death threats. Fans would actually boo when he hit a home run. His hair started to come out in clumps from the stress. Sometime during the middle of the season, the commissioner of baseball, Ford Frick, made an incredibly unfortunate comment at a press conference. Frick said that since Ruth had set the record in 154 games, anyone who broke Ruth's record had to do it within 154 games. If it took more than 154, the new record should appear in any record books with a distinctive mark to denote that it had been done in a 162-game season. A sports writer at the conference immediately suggested an asterisk, and thus, the marker became part of history. All the world was arrayed against Maris breaking Ruth's record. All the world, except the New York Yankees clubhouse. Yet Maris's teammates, especially Mantle, and the team's manager, Ralph Hook, all came to Maris's defense and supported him. This was especially important because the media had spilled much ink writing about tensions between Maris and Mantle. According to news articles, the home run chase wasn't the only thing between the two sluggers. Writers ginned up false controversies and tensions because, well, those things sell. But Mantle denied the stories and didn't miss an opportunity to say it wasn't true. And for his part, Maris was a great teammate. 
He helped his teammates as they needed it. Regarding Mantle, well, Mickey Mantle was notorious for his raucous lifestyle. He spent many nights out drinking and carousing and arriving at the ballpark the next day hungover. Maris and his roommate, left fielder Bob Serve, concerned for their teammate, convinced Mantle to move in with them to help him gain some self-control. It helped Mantle quite a bit. To clarify the living arrangements, Roger Maris's wife, Patricia, and their children lived back at the Maris home in Missouri. Maris may have played his most important years in New York, but he never moved his family there. In late September, game 154 came and went, and Maris was sitting at 59 home runs. A few days later, he tied the record with a 60th homer, and then, in the final game of the season on October 1st, 1961, he hit the record-breaking 61st homer of the season. After that game, which his family was in town to watch, he and his wife, Pat, went to Mass. Unfortunately, the priest acknowledged Roger from the pulpit, prompting the Marises to get up and leave so as to avoid a spectacle. The 1961 season ended with the Yankees defeating the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series, and Roger Maris won his second consecutive MVP award. That was his best season. He remained a good, solid player for six more years. He hit 33 homers in 1962, 23 in 1963, and 26 in 1964, but then the stress of 1961 and injuries began to sap his playing time. He would go to the All-Star game a few more times. After the 1966 season, the Yankees traded Maris to the St. Louis Cardinals. He helped St. Louis get to the World Series in both 1967 and 1968, with the Cardinals winning the series in 1967. Maris retired after 1968 and moved to Gainesville, Florida, where the owners of the St. Louis Cardinals, who also happened to be the owners of Anheuser-Busch, set him up with a beer distributorship in that region. Maris remained a private man with a healthy distrust of the media for the rest of his life. He avoided most baseball reunion events and old-timers games due to lingering bitterness from how he'd been treated by the league leadership and sports media. It's tough to blame him. Yeah. However, the infamous asterisk in the record books never really happened. For one, Commissioner Frick had made that suggestion in a press conference, but had never formally proposed it. Also, Major League Baseball didn't actually manage or control any official record books at the time, so the commissioner wasn't able to put an asterisk next to the record anyhow, and those who did maintain such record books never added an asterisk. So, from the first, Roger Maris was recognized as holding the record for most home runs hit in a season. Which is as it should be. No player has any control over how many games are in a season. The record is most home runs in a season, not in 154 games. But of course, players do have the option to do it legitimately or to cheat. So any player who cheated with PEDs shouldn't get the recognition. But I digress. However, one recognition which he did not receive is election to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. He became eligible in 1974, but between then and when his name finally came off the ballot in 1988, he never received enough votes to make it. Maris himself was not surprised that he was not elected. Hall of Fame votes, of course, are cast by baseball writers. And since Maris had long had a prickly relationship with sports writers, he expected they would let their grudge against him keep him out. Some argue that while he had two Hall of Fame caliber seasons, 60 and 61, his overall career numbers don't merit the Hall of Fame. But this argument doesn't stand up for two reasons. One, there are plenty of others in the Hall with less significant accomplishments than Maris. Two, it's called the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Great Overall Careers. No one can argue that Maris isn't among the most famous names in baseball after his 1961 season, and no one can argue that he did it the wrong way. 
Happily, Maris may yet get into the Hall of Fame. In 2016, the Hall of Fame established the Golden Days Error Committee to vote on players from 1950 to 1969 who were previously overlooked. Maris is among those whom they are considering. Maris's Yankees uniform number, 9, was retired in July of 1984, and a plaque with his likeness stands in Monument Park in Yankee Stadium. The plaque is subtitled, Against All Odds, and it reads, A great player and author of one of the most remarkable chapters in the history of Major League Baseball. But after being present at Yankee Stadium to receive this recognition, Roger Maris didn't live long enough to see his name removed from the Hall of Fame ballot in 1988, or to see the Golden Era Days Committee take up his case once again. Maris was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1983 and went in for aggressive treatment, but it was too late. He died on December 14, 1985, at just 51 years old. His funeral in Fargo was on a bone-chilling, snowy Thursday, with temperatures at 5 below zero. Many of his old Yankees teammates were there that day, including Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Bob Serve, Cleet Boyer, and Moose Skowron along with a few teammates from his Cardinals days. His funeral mass was held at St. Mary's Cathedral in Fargo, where he had attended mass as a boy. During his eulogy, Roger Maris Jr., the eldest of the Maris' seven children, said of his father, He treated every person he greeted as though he were standing on an identical pedestal, eyeball to eyeball. His number one priority in life was to see that each and every day his family and friends received as much happiness as possible. A few days later on Monday, a memorial service was held for him at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Maris was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Fargo with his Yankee and Cardinal teammates serving as pallbearers. Roger Maris was never an outspoken self-promoter. He did not go out of his way to anger anyone, but he did not suffer fools or entertain ridiculous questions. He wasn't a bubbly extrovert, but he was a loyal friend, a loving father, and devoted man of faith. He inspired his teammates to be better by his actions, and he saw success wherever he went. And though he didn't get the recognition he deserved in life, he died in the embrace of the church, and that's far more important. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Roger Maris, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory. On Instagram at ACH underscore podcast or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. <laughs>